Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at The Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. Will Summer, it appears the song of the summer has arrived early this year, by at least a week or two. Have you checked out the new Project Veritas? What are we even calling it? A music video, a parody, a theater kid escapade? What did you think about it? And what the hell was it? Because I I gotta be honest with you, I saw it flutter across a couple of my social media feeds. I did not click on it at all. So on Monday, James O'Keefe, after, you know, a lot of hype uh, in the Project Veritas community, you know, James O'Keefe, known for his undercover videos, he he released this video. uh, uh, It's a play on Prince's song Controversy called Oligarchy, and it's James O'Keefe and some backup dancers, and I think someone dressed as a llama, which is a James O'Keefe thing, dancing around, and James O'Keefe says, basically, like, if you watch this, it's just like, okay, I guess James O'Keefe spent a lot of money on a music video. Right-wing donor money well spent. Uh, Is he singing himself? I don't think so. Although, you know, James O'Keefe does have a background in theater, I believe. Right. And so, you know, he's a showman at heart. And so he's dancing around. And so the ostensible reason for this music video is that he's launching this outfit to to basically fund lawsuits against the libel and defamation lawsuits against the media. Uh, and so he's saying, have you ever been defamed in this song? Um, and basically that James O'Keefe will fund your lawsuits. I mean, to me, that sounds like, you know, he's basically trying to do a Peter Thiel, Charles Harder thing. In, in the way that they did to Gawker. Uh, he's kind of looking for some lawsuits that he can, you know, whack the media on the head for. Uh, but to me, I, I think the the kind of the real reason for this is that the coronavirus pandemic has made it a lot harder for James O'Keefe to plant people in organizations to go undercover. And so now he is kind of sitting around and thinking up music videos. And in the same way that he tried to rip off Prince for this, he's kind of trying to rip off the Peter Thiel, Charles Harder thing, which other people over the years, since that was ended up being rather successful in them trying to eliminate Gawker, 
Other people and other organizations have tried to carbon copy that over the years, and it has never quite worked with the same level of impact. I mean, it's an interesting idea. I mean, certainly if you, you know, there's enough people, you know, often with like frivolous gripes against the media and who James O'Keefe has an endless bucket of money with which to file lawsuits that, uh, you know, intimidate the media and, you know, waste people's time. You know, it's a pretty aggressive move, but but I, but I think you can see where I think conservative donors could, could find that to be worth their time. And, and people love these stories. I mean, you, you know, people love like when, you know, James, conservatives love when like James O'Keefe wins some like minor court motion in a lawsuit against the New York Times. And then he says, we beat the New York Times. And I mean, people love that stuff. Right. Whenever that happens, though, does it ever actually go anywhere? I mean, not really. I mean, the example, like the classic example would be like the uh, the Covington Catholic student Nick Sandman's lawsuit against, uh, you know, CNN and the Washington Post. There's a lot of evidence suggesting his settlement with the Washington Post was like possibly at best in the couple hundreds of thousands of dollars. But then his side and his supporters like to insinuate that it was for like 20 million dollars. And, you know, no one's ever going to correct the record on that. Certainly, I think if you're James O'Keefe, there's a good way to diversify your antics. Something else that has become actually a bigger cause celeb among the right over the past few days has been a Governor Ron DeSantis's Florida social media law. And this is something, Will, that you've been following with noted interest because just how unconstitutional it reads and also how there's this hilarious carve out that just reeks of cronyism in this like latest noxious step towards, oh, I'm a powerful right winger who is mad about the things I can or cannot post. So I'm going to exercise the laws of the state against, I don't know, big tech or whatever. Yeah. So this is kind of this is an interesting one. And, and I think we'll be seeing this in a lot of other states, um, despite the fact that it's totally unconstitutional. Uh, yeah. So the Florida Republicans, they made this law and it's clearly about Donald Trump. And it, it would find social media companies for banning politicians or candidates from office. And so, you know, as a result. So basically, this is a reaction to Trump getting banned from Twitter and Facebook. These fines would be like in the tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, You could suspend someone for like, I think, 12 hours, maybe or two weeks or something like that. But you couldn't permanently ban them. And this is this is a sort of dearly held project of a lot of fringe people, uh, such as anti-Muslim activist Laura Loomer, uh, who's kind of ricocheting around Florida, uh, doing various activism stuff these days. Um, Because this is for years, they have dreamed that if you run for office, you have to be let back on Twitter. And this is sort of like a, almost like an apocryphal belief. There's no reason to believe this. But both in, <laughs> in the United States and then so, sort of their counterparts in the UK, there's been a lot of like, well, if I run for office, you have to let me back on Twitter. And Twitter has just said no. Okay, so... What is actually in this Florida law, and has Ron DeSantis signed it yet? So Ron DeSantis is expected to sign it. He hasn't signed it yet. I mean, he's very on board with it. Here's what's in it. The the main thrust of it is this idea that social media companies would be banned if they suspend a politician, or excuse me, if they ban a politician from their platform or a candidate from office. And and there's kind of these these ongoing fines. Additionally, there's a lot of like other kind of like little bitty things that kind of feed off of other conservative grievances with big tech. Um, one of which is that it, it lets you somehow opt out of being shadow banned. You know, sh- being shadow banned is kind of this big bet noir. It's a little unclear to me, and, and I think the way it's written is a little unclear because shadow banning is like kind of fake. And so it, it's unclear to me whether it, you you opt out of being shadow banned by like, they can't shadow ban you, or you can see people who are shadow banned. The reason I think it's written as vaguely as it is is because this law will never happen. And I mean, just the idea like, okay, would Donald Trump not be banned in Florida, but be, he's banned in the rest of American Twitter? I mean, it... it <laughs> <laughs> sort of the, the implementation here doesn't really make sense. Right. And OK, the, the shadow banning thing fascinates me because uh, just in case our 
listeners aren't intimately familiar with the shadow banning controversy that started, I don't know, back in, what was it, 2018, where uh, the head of the Republican National Committee and Don Jr. and other prominent conservatives like that were accusing Twitter um, uh, making it harder to find their tweets because of the algorithm. And after further investigation by uh, certain news outlets, it turned out that the accusation was almost entirely built on sand. It was just, it was not targeted discrimination against uh, powerful right wingers on Twitter.com, but it's in the right wing and conservative media ecosphere. It's never getting out. Yeah, it's become this big thing where it's sort of like, I'm not getting my cloud up. You know, my tweets aren't popping. I've been shadow banned. Like, like people are just like, I'm not gaining followers at the rate I should be. And so they assume that there's this um, this larger conspiracy when, I mean, in reality, you know, maybe the tweets just aren't that good. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully this new bill will mandate that Twitter give everyone 100K followers uh, just to kick it off. So Florida Republicans want that imaginary problem to be solved by the state legislature and the governor's mansion. I know there isn't a floor with these things in modern American conservatism anymore, but it still kind of stuns me, casually speaking, when I sit and think about it for more than two and a half seconds, because that it would be equivalent. And I don't think this is exaggerating at all. Like whenever I tweet a photo of um, my cats or one of my cats, and I think it's super cute, amazingly cute, world historically cute, but gets like, I don't know, eight retweets or something. It would be equivalent to me forging a left wing political movement around that and asking Twitter, why are you discriminating on against me? Why isn't this getting more engagement? It actually, it, the impetus behind that aspect of this actual Florida law or attempted unconstitutional legislation, whatever you want to call it, is very much in line with that. And I think it's sometimes hard to wrap your head around the fact that I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying it's that stupid. It is literally that fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, there's this other twist that I love, which is the, written into the bill is this carve out that, that is clearly meant to protect Disney, which is, you know, obviously is based in Florida and has Disney World. So, you know, it's all these rules against social media companies and stuff. And it says this doesn't apply if you run a theme park too. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, what I think is so funny, and this, the state rep came out and he said, uh, yeah, well, we didn't want Disney plus to get caught up in this, which like, I don't think this would apply to Disney plus anyway. I mean, it's not like they're going to like shadow ban baby Yoda. I mean, it's a totally, it's, it's not a social media platform, but for me, that really just like makes clear how much it's like, you know, we want to thumb in the eye of like, you know, who people we don't like, and we want to protect uh, the people we do like. And it, another reason it's such a hilarious carve out is because when they're not dealing with legal and legislative idiocy like this, they are more than happy to make rhetorical jabs at Disney, telling them about how they just kowtow to the oh, Chinese right. all the time and that they're complicit in their human rights violations. Well, they or, canceled Gina Carano. Right, exactly. But then the moment they realize, oh, wait, this could have affect the economy of our state, of course they back off of it, which further undergirds that there just is zero principle here. There is no principle. There is only power and grievance. That's it. The, the, the one other funny thing I, I want to highlight here is that, so there's like uh, Michelle Malkin, you know, conservative columnist who, who's kind of gone off the deep end lately. Um, Laura Loomer, as I mentioned, the Nick Fuentes, you know, this white nationalist who was involved in the Capitol riot. So they were all going to have this rally in favor of making the bill harder or, you know, tougher on companies. Uh, Laura Loomer 
wanted $100 million in fines. Uh, and so they were going to have this rally. And number one, I mean, this is how Nick Fuentes, uh, who lives somewhere in the Midwest, he found out he was on the no-fly list after the riot because he was flying down to this rally in Florida. But basically, they're really mad and they think the bill doesn't go hard enough, primarily because it's not retroactive. And so someone like Laura Loomer, who's already been banned, she presumably, like, the companies wouldn't get fined for keeping her banned. And so, you know, this is, like, for these people, like, getting back on social media is so, so, like, important to their whole brand, just like it is for Trump. And so the fact that that this wouldn't be like a free pass back on Twitter just drives them nuts. I have trouble getting over the fact that some people have it baked into their craniums that if I am running for office, Twitter and Facebook have to let me post. Well, you, I mean, you know, Twitter is in the Constitution. I mean, so, I mean, it, it is just so funny. Like, it, it was so funny. And like, the, it, 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 again, I mean, it really was this whole idea where they would just say, well, they simply have to let me back on. And then Twitter was like, no, we won't. And then it was like, well, well shoot, now I got to run for Congress. I'm, I'm going to start arguing publicly that if I am a candidate for anything in the country, Comcast has to give me a discount. It is unfair <laughs> I mean, and great. unconstitutional if I don't get free um, Stars Network or something. So, Swin, you know, people may have missed it, you know, in all the news, but, you know, Rudy Giuliani's back in the news. The feds raided his house. You know, and this is an opportunity to get some some of our classic characters back together. And, and you know, this is a this is a real sweet spot for you. So, uh, so what have you learned about this situation? Okay, so whenever the feds raid someone in Trump land or someone is suddenly under investigation, there is this magnetic or gravitational, should I say, pool that brings the cast of characters that we have come Come to know and abhor or love over the past four or five years back together. You can document it to a T that when something happens, suddenly up the cavalry, or at least part of the cavalry, gets back together. So in the case of Rudy Giuliani, who has been under investigation for a while by the feds, this dates back to the Trump administration and is obviously continuing now in the Biden era for allegations of illegal lobbying as it pertains to the uh, Trump-Rudy Ukraine scandal. Last Wednesday, the feds raided his his apartment and his office. The following day on Thursday, uh, Giuliani picked up the phone and called uh, his buddy Alan Dershowitz, who is, of course, a celebrity attorney and uh, who obviously is a, a longtime criminal defense attorney and celebrity lawyer. He uh, was on Donald Trump's legal defense during the first impeachment trial in early 2020. So uh, Rudy Giuliani, I believe, had seen on TV that Alan Dershowitz was predictably coming out and speaking out against the federal raid on Fourth Amendment grounds, arguing that this is not something you should do as anything but a last, last, last resort for someone who is a lawyer or a doctor or a priest, anybody who uh, handles privileged in information with a client or patient. So after Rudy had seen that on TV... What I'm thinking is, if it, I mean, if it if it reaches to the level where they're raiding a lawyer, it's generally like they got some pretty solid evidence to show a judge to get the search warrant. Well, of course, Will Summer, deep state propagandist, would say that. <laughs> so Rudy calls Dershowitz and asks him if he was willing to advise him and his legal team, not become an official member of his legal team, but advise Team Rudy on Fourth Amendment issues as they begin their coming intended legal battle against the federal government over this raid and the investigation. I think what cracks me up about Alan Dershowitz, I mean, this guy has like the Hermione Granger time turner, right? What the fuck is that? That's the thing Hermione uses to take so many classes. It lets her time travel. So Jedi <laughs> Jedi. <laughs> listen to this podcast. Come on. So this is this is my Harry this is my Harry Potter fan cast. Okay, so 
anytime any right wing guy with some amount of money is like, oh man, my thing looks like a real clown show. Like the, who who can who can bolster me? And he's like, hey, Alan Dershowitz, do you want to advise me? And he says, why, absolutely. And so, like, I mean, th- the amount of advising this guy does, it, it, I mean, it, 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 it's just incredible. Right. He's also advising Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO, and his legal team on First Amendment, not Fourth Amendment grounds. And well, it, I mean, does Dershowitz just say, like, here's my advice. You're screwed. <laughs> I think he's a little bit sunnier than that and uh, more optimistic. But when I rang up Dershowitz late last week, one of the things he pointed out as a point of historical irony is that dating back to the 1970s, Dershowitz and Giuliani, Giuliani, of course, long before he became a Trump attorney and long before he became America's mayor or whatever you want to call him, was a federal prosecutor. So Giuliani knows how this works. In fact, late last year, one conversation I was having with Giuliani, he went on a tangent where he started bragging about his days as a federal prosecutor, saying that he was able to take down these criminals and help take down the mob by using tactics that were perfected in the 1960s by the FBI to surveil and go after members of the new left and American communists. And he boasted very giddily that he and his cohorts at the time were, quote, like burglars. So he knows how this works. He knows the intrusive power that the feds can have. He has reveled in it in the past, but only now that it's being turned against him and in years prior, his uh, client, Donald J. Trump, is he starting to get all huffy about it. So Dershowitz actually pointed this out in his own way when I was talking to him about it, saying that for years, if not decades, we were on opposite sides of Fourth Amendment issues and search and seizure issues when it came to specific cases or criminal prosecutions. And now all of a sudden, I'm advising him on my worldview on this. And he said something to the effect of, there's nothing that'll get you to change your mind more than it happening to you. Which even though uh, Dershowitz not- Well, yeah, literally anything will change your mind if it happens to you. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I guess. <laughs> should be the new conservative flag. Replace don't shut yeah, up right. me with that. <laughs> I mean, all these guys, like, like it was just like, you know, they were fine with all these, like, FBI raids and stuff, and then suddenly, like, but me? Oh, uh, oh, no. There is a conservative ideological plank that really does boil down to, oh, wait, my crimes or my alleged crimes uh, don't have blanket protection from them stealing my stuff? I, 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 I want my iPad back. I'd just like to cover, I mean, this is bringing back so many classic characters. And, you know, people may be like, I don't care about Ukraine anymore, whatever. But I think a lot of this stuff, I mean, it, it explains like a lot of kind of like, and potentially it could explain some kind of like subterranean movements within conservative media as well. And so, I mean, this this ties in, the feds want Giuliani's communications with John Solomon, uh, I will say my former coworker at The Hill. You know, he's kind of this like right-wing journalist who always gets these stories that don't make any sense. Um, and and so they want his communications with him. And they're also interested, uh, they took a device from Victoria Tonsing, a sort of one of these lawyers who goes on Sean Hannity, or at least used to, and makes all these crazy allegations about the deep state. Someone else um, who's been close to Trump over the years. Right, yes. right. And she says she's not a target. I don't know. I mean, if they're taking your devices, I wouldn't say you're not not a target. Um, but so, you know, I mean, this is kind of sucking in a lot of these characters. And I, for one, I'm intrigued. I think we could, you know, especially the aspect where it's getting like Fox News guests, where it's getting a John Solomon's case, someone who's who lost ostensibly a journalist. I think, um, you know, things are, th- things are, there are afoot. And I, I think, uh, you know, potentially we could be uh, getting some interesting information. For any of our listeners who know even an iota 
about who John Solomon is and what he does with his work, it is mind-blowing that he keeps ending up at the centers of these major scandals. Not just the Trump-Ukraine saga, but now obviously the Giuliani investigation that is in a way kind of an offshoot of that. It is miraculous this guy is driving actual national <laughs> events when it comes to this level of major scandal. It's mind-blowing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. On this week's episode, we welcome Ken Klippenstein, a friend of the show and a reporter and document hound for The Intercept. Prior to his time at The Intercept, he served as the DC correspondent for the magazine The Nation. And during his time working in independent left-wing media, he's exposed internal documents proving Amazon management's knowledge of the indignities their workers have had to suffer, including their workers having to urinate in bottles and defecate in bags. Ken has also uncovered documents showing how the Trump administration had referred a record number of leaks for criminal prosecutions, outpacing even the Obama administration. And earlier this year, he also broke news on a sexual assault scandal involving 22 American troops who are now being investigated by the U.S. Army. You can follow him on Twitter at Ken Klippenstein. Ken, welcome to Fever Dreams. Hey, good to be with you guys. So, Ken, you know, first off the bat, in addition to your fantastic reporting and, and documents and his seemingly ability to get sources at just about any institution out there, uh, you're also known for your trolling of public figures. Uh, you know, you dupe people into, into publishing things on their uh, Twitter accounts. How did you get into this sideline of fooling figures such as disgraced reporter Mark Halperin and Naomi Wolf? Well, those two things are actually connected. The reporting and then people seeing my my hijinks. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had a source either contact me or I contact them and they say, oh yeah, you're the guy from Steve King or you're the guy from that, you're the guy from that meme I saw. It's sort of frightening because it's like up to it, including kind of boomer types who you would think are not particularly online. <laughs> so that's actually helped some with uh, source procurement. So Explain what happened with former Representative Steve King, who is obviously a hyper-nativist former congressman um, who later became a big Trump ally. Yeah, so on uh, July 4th, I think it was maybe two or three years ago, something that always irritates me that politicians do generally, not just Republicans, Democrats as well, is they tend to be very performative about, you know, we love the troops and all these things, which isn't necessarily bad. But when you're, you know, voting against funding the Veterans Affairs adequately and, you know, doing all these other things that could actually substantively help them and that they're in a position to do so. Uh, and, and you don't support those things. But, you know, the rhetoric is this very performative, you know, troops worship stuff that's, that kind of gets under my skin. So I tweeted on 4th of July, I said, sir, can I get a retweet from my uncle, Colonel Nathan Jessup? He's in the Marines and spending the 4th overseas keeping our nation safe. And I included in a picture of Jack Nicholson in that iconic scene in uh, A Few Good Men where he's saying, you know, you can't handle the truth. Probably the most, like, for a white nationalist who's <laughs> like really proud of America and everything, you'd think that he would know probably the most recognizable scene from certainly his generation in all of American cinema. Children know the scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
and so he quote tweeted it um, and says, Colonel Jessup and all your Marines, I'm quoting now. He says, God bless you all. You have our back and millions of us have yours. God bless America and all her warriors defending our liberty. And then signs it with this delicious little thing at the end, SK to show that it wasn't a so He doesn't have deniability to say it was a staffer that did it. <laughs> After he maybe found out that you had just pranked him, did he delete the tweet? Unceremonious delete and never said anything about it ever again. Why would he delete that, though? Because he probably subscribes to the ideology of the Jack Nicholson character. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. He might not have seen the movie. Because, again, not only is that scene iconic, that actor is probably one of the most famous actors, (laughs) certainly from this generation. (laughs) What if he just doesn't know? It's like, dude, do you know anything about this country that you claim to want to, you know, push all of the not real Americans out of? If you haven't seen this, if you don't know who Jack Nicholson is, Jesus Christ. And the thing is, all of these pranks, I try not to be cheap. I try to pick ones that are like, if you fall for it, you're really, you know, you're really asleep at the wheel. So what happened with former Trump official Rick Grinnell? Okay, so in his case, this was um, Trump's acting director of national intelligence. You'd hope somebody that, you know, has his head on straight. Again, it was Veterans Day. And so I, I just tweeted at him. I said, sir, my grandpa is a huge fan of yours. Here he is as a young army lieutenant. If you could shout him out, it'd make his day. And so uh, then he DM me. He said, what's his name? Which, again, just a gift from the heavens for me to, <laughs> to you. Because then I say, his name is Bill Cali. Uh, of course, you know, there's a <laughs> famous convicted uh, war criminal who killed I don't know how many Vietnamese and is kind of like the, again, this iconic figure from the Vietnam War that you kind of, is one of the first names that comes to mind when you think of, you know, uh, U.S. war crimes in Vietnam. And he shouts him out, including with a photo of the actual William Calley. He says, thank you for your service, Bill Calley, exclamation point. <laughs> And then after that, he did respond. He said, trying to be helpful to people who reach out on Veterans Day. It's a shame people would do this on a day like today. D.C. is a sick city. (laughs) Oh, how how dare you do that on all days? Veterans Day, man. (laughs) I do love when I feel like there's a common reaction. It's like that you get is when people say like, it's not like, oh, I'm a real dumb dumb. But it's just like how twisted someone would take sir, advantage of my sir. naivety. I only ran intelligence operations for the entire United States government. <laughs> exactly. Also, another reason that makes these uh, uh, pranks that you've made uh, uh, s- such a little hobby of yours recently is that it doesn't take much for someone to click on your Twitter profile and figure out who you are, and especially if they are on the right and a government official to think to themselves, this person does not seem on the level. <laughs> and they're not exactly legions of Ken Klippensteins that, that pop up when you Google the name. I, I don't think you're going to find uh, you know many, many other people that are going to confuse you as to what my uh, political background is. Okay, so in terms of something a little bit more serious, you are quite the little uh, public records and FOIA ninja when it comes to your work previously at The Nation, now at The Intercept. And when it comes to probing what was going on at the Trump DHS, now the Biden Department of Homeland Security, just simply by you and your lawyer putting in these records requests, you've uncovered a lot of equally disturbing but also strangely hilarious shit that the government has been hiding from the U.S. public? Yeah, um, I really like primary source documents because, and this is something I respect about you guys and and Noah in particular, um, there's so much speculation, particularly in the kind of more political media. There's a lot of kind of assertions of of fact that you don't actually have, that people don't actually have. So I I like primary source documents because then you can elide all of this ideological debate and just say, here's what we know. And it, it turns out when you have an institution like the federal government, they produce a ton of records. This is kind of like, I've always likened it to the exhaust port of the Death Star, which 
which is that when you have this huge national security apparatus that is monitoring everything, a weakness of that is that they're also logging everything and, and memorializing it all in the form of documents. And if you can get those, then you can, that can be a, 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 a critical window into um, how these agencies that, that try to be, try to operate um, in secrecy, uh, what they're in fact doing. Ken, how did you get into, into the Freedom of Information Act and how did you get into documents as sort of your angle? Well, I was in the Midwest. I lived in Wisconsin for a number of years, and I just didn't have the access to sources that a lot of other people have. Um, and that's not to say that that's not a good way to report. I, I do that a lot more now. But that lack of access sort of forced me to become good at other things. And um, frankly, there was just something, uh, it just seemed cool. The idea that, uh, and it is a cool law, the U.S., you know, I have a lot of criticism of, of the U.S. federal government and its policies, but we have one of the richest uh, and most open records laws of any on the on the planet uh, that, that I know of. Um, and so it always, once I discovered this, it was like, wait, you can just ask for their records and they have to give it to you? You know, I mean, there's uh, that's not exactly how it works in practice, but in theory, that is what the law says. I don't know. I just thought that was the coolest thing. I started using it and started getting results from it. And I found that a lot of reporters don't really, such a well-kept secret in the sense of everyone knows what it is, but nobody, there's just not a whole lot of competition. I mean, I could take a lot of credit and say, look how great I am. But I think the reality is I'm just one of the few people that does it consistently. A lot of people don't really use it. So tell us about some of the things that you have uncovered that these master spies and government officials have been doing with our taxpayer dollars recently. Yeah. So, for example, under the Trump administration, he cut aid to the Palestinian Authority uh, and the effect of that, uh, and I found this from a FOIA to the State Department, um, they they had communications with the embassy in Tel Aviv and back in Foggy Bottom uh, from a, a unnamed Ministry of Defense official, it's like their Defense Department, Israel's Defense Department, saying, you know, this is a catastrophe, not necessarily because we like the Palestinian Authority, but because this is going to undermine the security situation there, and that's going to end up end up hurting Israel. And so I was able to get the uh, a, a memo that, that basically said, said that. And then when I reported it, this created a diplomatic row and they were furious at the State Department for for disclosing that in a kind of interesting context to all of this. And I don't, interesting sort of uh, backdrop to all of this was that the Trump administration was so paranoid about uh, kind of deep state operatives and Obama loyalists within the State Department that they end up moving a lot of them uh, to the FOIA office. And you can guess what happens when you have very experienced people that shouldn't be there and feel as though they've been put out to pasture processing requests that could disclose information that would be injurious to the Trump administration. I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened here, but I know for a fact that that was a that was sort of the climate and the uh, atmosphere in the uh, State Department FOIA office. And you also discovered how the Trump administration, Department of Homeland Security, still has this fixation on juggalos of all potential threats to the republic. Yeah, that's right. So um, a big FOIA project of mine over the last year or so that I've embarked on with my um, attorney, Beth Borden, who does this stuff as a hobby. She's a public defender as her day job. And she just does this kind of FOIA stuff because she learns a lot about, um, you know, police records in particular from having to go toe to toe with law enforcement um, in defending her clients. Uh, I've, I I focus a lot on what's called um, fusion centers. Uh, these are mostly a post 9-11 creation after 9-11. Um, the Department of Homeland Security was set up and something that they uh, set up in each and every state. They have something called a fusion center that's like a, oftentimes it's in a police department, uh, though not always. The idea is they're fusing intelligence between local law enforcement and federal. And you can imagine a lot of, you know, problems. Civil libertarians raise a lot of concerns about the idea that a local police department that's perhaps not very sophisticated uh, can potentially share information with some of the most sophisticated intelligence agencies in the world that we have here in the U.S. at the federal level. That being said, you know, when you think about that, the, the kind of context in which these fusion centers was created was fears about terrorism. You know, how we got to stop the next 9-11. And so I was curious 
curious. I thought, well, maybe if I FOIA their intelligence reports, their intelligence products, we can get a sense of what it is they're actually doing. Because again, there's a lot of speculation, kind of like, oh, this is a waste of money, but nobody actually knows what they do because it's all, you know, they don't disclose a lot of it. So I, I, I must have FOIA dozens of different uh, state fusion centers. And what I got back was, I mean, it ranged from comical to frightening in terms of what they were doing. And so on the comical end, they're worried about uh, juggalos. It's is a big bugaboo of the, of the national security state. It's the idea that uh, these, these groups have some kind of secret and they're working together to some sort of end. Let me read you some of the examples of titles of these intelligence reports from the Fusion Centers to give you a flavor of what they're up to. Here's one title. Criminal and Violent Extremist Use of Emojis. What? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Is, hi, hi, yeah. hi. Okay, what is the example of a violent emoji? Like the knife emoji or... Yeah, I guess the idea that if they have like uh, maybe like a pig emoji and then a, and then the squirt gun or something, the idea is they're 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 signaling to people violence against police, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, very stuff we need these intelligence agencies for. Okay, here's another one. It it, it gets you know some of it is pretty you know some of it is laughable, but some of it also is sort of like reactionary in in tone. It's sort of frightening. So here's one: subscribers of Black extremism collaborate musically, Collabor- like <laughs> like hip hop. It was I, they don't say in the report or that I could see because some of it is redacted but i think there was like a rap group that was playing like a rap rock group or something and so it's, it's all about sub, it, the idea is that the, the individuals there are black extremists this is a designation they use for they try to they always try to equate black extremism you know they they say oh you know we have white supremacists as a target but we also worry about black supremacists too on that note ken you know you've done a lot of reporting on how the sort of national security state is interacting with this rise of far-right extremists and conspiracy theories you've done reporting on you know uh uh, their concerns about 5G people, you know, people who are afraid of 5G towers attacking the towers. I mean, how 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 do you see this kind of national security apparatus? How is it reacting to to these right wing groups? Well, some of the problem is that a lot of the folks in the agencies, and I know a lot of them, um, a lot of them are conservatives. And I'm not saying I, I would say the majority are MAGA by any means. However, they have a familiarity with this stuff where they perhaps don't perceive the extent of the threat. And I wonder if that's what happened on January 6th, because they're just so familiar with this. I mean, if you, you know, if you go on law enforcement, LinkedIn, a lot of the stuff you'll see posted again, it's not MAGA, but it's certainly in that in, in the universe of a lot of the things. It's that, MAGA adjacent. Yeah, exactly. A lot of it. Uh, again, I'm not saying all, but you know, there's, there's so much proximity to it. It probably loses its shock effect to them. I think our listeners would like to know more about the emojis memo. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I have in my notes is the title, and a lot of it was redacted. They re- That's the other thing, is to find out about these agencies was extremely difficult. We had to sue, and this is a months-long process of making specific arguments about why they should disclose things. To give you an example of how secretive these fusion centers are, I got intelligence reports back from, um, for example, Minnesota, their fusion center, where they redacted the bullet points. There's like little black boxes over the specific bullet points. And that's the degree of, I mean, and I have an attorney and I'm experienced at this. If you're an ordinary citizen, because anyone can use FOIA, that's not supposed to be the province of just journalists. Uh, you don't stand a chance against these guys. Oh, here's here's another good one. This was from the Florida Fusion Center. Quote, break Joe Exotic out of jail, all caps, they can't stop us all. And so there was a lot of fear that there was going to be some kind of bum rush of the prison where Joe Exotic is, is staying in. <laughs> and it's just, I think it was some Facebook group, maybe someone did as a joke or something. So, so what years do these beautiful intelligence reports encompass? Like, from what year to what year were they worried about juggalos, emojis, uh, black extremist hip-hop, or whatever kind of music, and Joe Exotic jailbreak? 
These are all from the last year or two. I tried to keep a pretty narrow frame. I always do in my requests. If you narrow things, you tend to get things back faster, or you get things back at all. If it's too broad, they won't. Uh, they won't. They won't fulfill it. But this is all from my edification during the Trump administration, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and to give you another sense, I mean, so those are all funny. But to give you an idea of how they drop the ball on things that you could say these types of agencies legitimately exist for. So this is the North Capital Region Threat Intelligence Consortium. It's in D.C., probably one of the fancier ones, the ones that, you know, around the federal buildings tend to be fancier and for law enforcement generally. So they wrote an intelligence report, particularly ill-fated one, uh, dated January 2020. It's, the title is, quote, Novel Coronavirus Unlikely to Impact the District. <laughs> that was, that of worked course, out well. <laughs> yeah. We never heard about it again. You're just bumming us the fuck out on this <laughs> show right now, man. Well, there's <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars going into these things. It's crazy. I'm not against, uh, you know, law enforcement or, uh, you know, agencies to worry about these kind of things, but that's not what these are doing by and large. Something else I want to talk to you about, Ken, that you did recently earlier this month for The Intercept was a story about how you discovered that drones that the U.S. government had used in places like Afghanistan, like war drones, they are now using to surveil domestic activity and protests, including protests that erupted in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. Yeah, so something about um, Department of Homeland Security, it's huge. It's the biggest collection of law enforcement agencies in terms of the number of personnel, probably by funding too, in the entire United States. Um, and of course, it's very young. It was established after 9-11. And the context of it, you know, it's supposed to be this thing that's the idea is prevent the next 9-11. So they contain within them uh, Customs and Border Protection. And Customs and Border Protection, a lot of people don't know this, they essentially have their own Air Force. It's called Air and Marine Operations, AMO. And so um, people sometimes get a glimpse of this when there are uh, big protests and they use them and kind of there's a controversy about it. So when there were the protests after the uh, police killing of black man George Floyd, they used a uh, Reaper drone. This is like one of these loitering drones that we typically use in Afghanistan um, for surveillance purposes. They used that to watch the protesters and it was a big controversy. Con Congress ended up asking them, you know, how long uh, did, you know, did you have this thing dispatched? Like, what are the laws around this stuff? Because a lot of it is sort of gray area. I mean, law enforcement has given a lot of power, particularly after 9-11, in, in handling these kind of things domestically. But um, it, it's not just that drone. They have a whole fleet of them. And so what I found was that um, there's a huge market, very lucrative market now for what's called counter drone technology because the U.S. on the part of the U.S. military um, for a number of different reasons. But one big one is that um, about a year or two ago, um, the Iranian military, they did a kind of small drone swarm attack where they, you know, affixed explosives to them and just sent a bunch of them into, um, you know, some important uh, oil producing uh uh, part of Saudi Arabia. And they were successful in destroying some, and they weren't able to deter them d despite, you know, hundreds of probably bill yeah, billions of dollars worth of, you know, Patriot missile kind of defense things. And so um, it then became a huge concern on the part of the Pentagon is like, how do we, how do we offset? How do we respond? How can we shoot down or prevent or mitigate uh, these small drones? So they start putting out hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contracts to, it's called counter UAV, counter drone technology. And so part of this is that it creates a very, you know, lucrative market for these kind of things. And then the other agencies adjacent to DOD, so uh, Customs and Border Protection in this case, they want a bite of that apple. They see all that money. They see all those contracts. They say, hey, we have a drone fleet. Maybe we should get some of this too. So 
My understanding is that they're actually having the military uh, work with Customs and Border Protection, and I have some documents to this effect, to develop their own counter drone capabilities. And what that can often mean is armed drones of their own that can shoot down or otherwise neutralize other drones. And so this is a huge pro program, you know, again, involving hundreds of millions of dollars and new, at this point, novel capabilities that Customs and Border Protection doesn't yet have. There's no public debate about this at all. Congress doesn't even seem aware of it, as far as I can tell. Right. It's, it's yet another prime example of ways that the war on terror is brought home. Like, it, it, that inevitably was going to happen. It was happening for years. And it just happens in these, like, pornographically uh, crazy ways. And it's gotten to the point where people in power, even people who are ostensibly ideologically opposed or politically opposed to some of these measures, just they're barely batting an eye. Yeah, exactly. And again, that's the, where the records come in. So in this case, I had some leak to me. I, uh, I like to look at contracting records because that's a, that's a, you know, porthole into this whole, I mean, the, the, the chink in the armor of the national security state is they love private contracting. And when you do that, you have to disclose information what the contracts are. And if you go over those, you can learn quite a lot about what they're up to. Not everything, because there's still a lot of classified stuff, but they have to disclose to contractors what the products are that they're looking for to spend money on. And if you read those, they can tell you quite a lot. So, Ken, you know, speaking of the, the war on terror kind of being directed, uh, you know, at, at American citizens, now we have this situation after January 6th where I feel like it's sort of like a smaller scale in the same way that September 11th was like, you know, the U.S. apparatus had to suddenly focus on preventing that from happening again. Now I imagine there's a lot of egg on these agencies' faces. Are we seeing a similar kind of like gold rush in terms of these agencies suddenly all focusing on, uh, on domestic extremists? Well, there's a lot of difficulty with that because they're all scared of Congress. They're scared of the, because the reality, I don't know how to say this. Uh, you know, I don't want to be uh, partisan, but it's like the Republican Party doesn't want them to dig that far into that stuff because then they're going to start bumping into some of their own supporters. Um, and so, you know, I talked to guys that are, you know, uh, a lot of these guys are, they're well-meaning. I mean, criticism of the national security apparatus, that's an institutional critique. When you talk to the individuals that comprise it, they by and large care about trying to do their job well. I don't agree with this idea that they're all kind of in on it. That's that's certainly not true. But the difficulty is that if they get any of these groups that they're, you know, uh, politically affiliated with the Republican Party, they're, they're going to bring hell down on them. And they're scared of that. And they don't want to have their funding cut. They don't want to be dragged in front of Congress to answer questions from, you know, uh, Matt Gates or whoever it is that's angry about it. So it, they're really sort of hamstrung, you know, without a lot of... And then on the Democratic side, they're worried about the any sort of potential blowback from the Republicans. If they go ahead and really push forward with this stuff, they're nervous that then the Republicans will try to, you know, look... Maybe they'll worry more about Antifa or whatever the... I'm not saying there's any sort of equivalency between those two groups. There's plenty of evidence to suggest just that the ponderance of you know violence is coming from these right-wing groups, and that's what folks in the intelligence community will tell you too. But there's just a lot of structural reasons that that I don't think they're going to be able to go very far um, in terms of uh, prosecuting this very aggressively. Well, Ken, thanks so much for coming on Fever Dreams. My pleasure. And where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, and I've got my signal in there if you're a government employee or someone else that wants to reach the press. Leak to Ken at tips at thedailybeast.com. <laughs> <laughs> And now we bring listeners to one of our favorite recurring segments that we like to call Fresh Hell, where we introduce the audience to something batshit that's happening in the world that they perhaps have heard nothing about. So, Will, something else that you have been following closely is Linwood's bid for South Carolina Republican Party chair. Linwood is, of course, a uh, very, very Trumpy attorney 
who spearheaded one of the parallel efforts that was trying to overturn Joe Biden's legitimate win to keep Donald Trump in power. He has been very enthusiastic about conspiracy theories, very wild, convoluted conspiracy theories, particularly when he's been promulgating them online and at rallies. And he has been a person of particular interest of study for you over the past couple of years, at least. And now he is trying to control the South Carolina Republican Party. Yeah, Linwood is really on a tear. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, right, was one of the kind of the main Trump election dead enders uh, legally. We talked on an earlier episode about Lynn wrestling a gun away from a Navy SEAL who was working for him. Lynn, you know, for what it's worth, he said it was in self-defense. And then, you know, just a few weeks ago, I saw Lynn uh, down in Tulsa, you know, at a conference saying, like, QAnon's real, QQQ. He was also calling for the execution of political enemies, right? Right, right, saying, oh, it's time for a firing squad, right? And so now, you know, it sounds like a perfect guy to run for chairman of the South Carolina uh, Republican Party, uh, despite the fact that, you know, as of a few months ago, he lived in Georgia, but he has this plantation in South Carolina, and now he's running for the GOP chair. Of course, Linwood has a plantation. And now it's, uh, you know, he's running, and here's the crazy thing. Maybe he'll win? Wait, 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 wait. wait. He actually has a shot of winning? I mean, you know, it's hard to know with, with these kind of party things, these sort of internal party debates, but but just sort of watching these videos of Linwood debating uh, Drew McKissick, who's the current incumbent and the current chair of the party there. I mean, this is sort of like what we're seeing is the like the QAnon fringe and the QAnon adjacent fringe of the GOP crashing up against the guys who currently run the GOP in the South who are already pretty conservative and, you know, kind of some wacky guys themselves. But but this party is like the, the Linwood contingent is just like going hardcore at them. And so, for example, Linwood is is a, Drew McKissick speaking at an event and Linwood just starts heckling him and he's like, why won't you talk about the pedophiles? <laughs> You can sit down and you can walk outside. You can sit down and you can walk outside. I know why. You don't know what you don't know in this morning. I know exactly why. Oh, well, that's very good. We'll have a conversation with you. Don't give him a round of applause. And Drew McKissick is sort of like baffled. And I mean, both of these guys have a very like Southern attitude where they're like, you should so- show some respect, show some respect to your elders. And these guys are kind of just like, like banging up against each other. But like you watch these other videos of like Linwood events in South Carolina and people love him. I mean, this is not like one guy who's just like out in the wilderness. I mean, he has a lot of fans. And so, for example, like you'll have one of these like McKissick guys who's a, you know, kind of a, a good old boy who will say, like, um, excuse me, sir, uh, I don't know if our party should be ran by a guy who says uh, Chief Justice John Roberts runs a sex trafficking ring. And and then Lynn Wood does his he does his spiel where he's like, show some respect, young man. Like, <laughs> like you, you are mischaracterizing my telegram post. And and then everyone around is like, yes, this is right. Like, I mean, he just does his like obfiscation. And but the people love thing it. is he's not mischaracterizing his telegram post. On any other day no, of the week, right. Lynn Wood would stand up staunchly to say it's like Hell yeah, I accuse John Roberts of that. Hell yeah, I accuse Mike Pence of being a traitor who deserves hanging or whatever bullshit he's hollered in the recent past. It's a part of his brand 
Are you telling me he tries to back away from it when inconvenient? Well, he kind of obfuscates about it. He kind of dances around it, like, depending on, on the situation. I mean, meanwhile, right, I mean, in a couple weeks earlier, he's like, time for a firing squad. Uh, but I gotta say, I mean, you know, I felt this way, like, since he was having rallies with Sidney Powell, another pro-Trump lawyer. I mean, Linwood has a lot of energy behind him, and he's a very uh, entertaining and rousing orator in a way I haven't seen aside from Donald Trump. And so, you know, I kind of, you, you know, I, I hesitate to, uh, it brings me no joy to say this, but I kind of think that if he wins this Republican seat, this chairmanship, I suspect his political career will not end there. He is one of the leading cheerleaders on the right, and I think he has been the most successful at it, and well, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, of making performative anti-pedophilia something that has become or about to become a major plank, especially if you're running in local or state Republican parties. Right, exactly. This kind of like, it's, well, what are you going to do about the sex trafficking rings? And like, people are like, what? What are you talking about? And then they're just like, wow, like, you know, you're you're siding with the pedophiles. Right, but who, who wants to come out when they're running against a, a very Trumpist candidate in a Republican primary or Republican contest and say, and, and, and open themselves up to allegations that they're being soft on pedophilia. <laughs> right. I mean, I think you make a great point there that, like, for a lot of these people, like Drew McKissick, for example, he's a big Trump fan. Like, he's not going to, like, so you can't outflank him that way. But you can basically be like, well, Drew, are you willing to sign on to crypto QAnon? Uh, because, like, when these people are talking about pedophiles and sex trafficking rings, they're talking about QAnon. But they're saying it in a way that the average, even Republican voter, isn't necessarily going to be like, that's a Q guy. But that's what the signaling is. And so when you're saying, like, what are you going to do about pedophiles? And Drew McKissick's like, well, like, it's illegal to be a pedophile. Like, you know, I mean, like, they're, they're, they're after those guys, I guess. But, I mean, really, Linwood is signaling on a deeper level to people who, even if they aren't consuming QAnon, are often consuming these kind of like Facebook memes about, uh, you know, this false statistic about 400,000 children going missing every year. This also, of course, ties into there's an evangelical Christian aspect to this. I mean, there's a real like revival aspect to Linwood's speeches. Uh, you know, the one I saw him do, it, it was very like, last night I talked about the election. Tonight, we're going to talk about the children. And everyone just goes wild. And so, yeah, I mean, really, I, I think this is this kind of like Hurricane Lynn just crashing into this GOP establishment that in South Carolina that never expected this. And the other thing I would say is that, like, Linwood does a lot of, like, both like QAnon, but also kind of like Jacob Wool, uh, you know, conservative uh, mischief maker. He does a lot of, like, hinting that revelations will soon be coming out that are not coming out. And so in this other, he had this other exchange with uh, Drew McKissick where he said, I know all about you and Lindsay, presumably referring to Lindsey Graham. And Drew McKissick's like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, it'll all be coming out. Don't you worry. Then he said some variation on nothing can stop what's coming, which is a QAnon phrase. Uh, I mean, Drew McKissick is just like, what the heck is happening here? And so, you know, I, I guess we'll see if the sort of the internal GOP is able to, if sort of the McKissick, his allies are able to kind of fend this off. But I think if this was just like a vote of all Republicans, I think if this was a primary, I think Linwood would have a pretty good chance. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.